The most comfortable podcast in the world. In the world. <laughs> well, I picked up on the low key thing because when I got the first email, I thought, okay, who are these guys? So I went and listened to it. And I thought, oh my God, this couldn't be any more different from what I do. <laughs> I try to cram like three hours of content in my four minute podcast, which is actually broadcast on the radio here in Alberta. And nice. it's pretty much yeah. the opposite approach. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's why I was excited to have you on the show. And once we, you know, we discovered your podcast and learned about you. So let's let's just dive right in. Let's, I mean, let's say that's the starting. That point. was the starting point. I think that uh, David uh, opening up with that that line right there is the best way to introduce. Yes. Um, the, the contrast between our shows. Yes. Of, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> trying to, to put all the knowledge in four minutes versus trying to give as little knowledge as possible yes. in 40. Yes. Your words. Yeah. Your words. Yes. Yes. <laughs> our words. Hey, we claim it. We claim it proudly. Um, no. Welcome to the Buy Our Friendly Podcast. I'm Jacob. And I'm Noel. And today we're welcoming uh, David Dodge, who is the host of Green Energy Futures Podcast and uh, also a environmental journalist, photojournalist, has a has a quite a, a long history in the environmental scene. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Oh my gosh. Uh, I've been, you know, I'm a forester by education. I studied forestry in university. Why? Awesome. I have no idea why. I, I wanted to work outdoors, and the counselor in high school said, well, you should try forestry. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So I signed up. I thought it was great. Uh, and, I, you know, I started working for a newspaper while I was still in university as a columnist and as a news photographer, as a photojournalist. And I just loved it. I mean, who wouldn't like making $10 per picture published? You know, like that was the, the, the pay rate of my first gig. Uh, wow. So, you know, yeah. I, there were months I made 20 bucks. So um, why would you want to do month, that? what a month, right? What a month. <laughs> <laughs> That's I hilarious. love it. Um, so, sorry, you asked about background. Uh, but while I was at that paper, it was really interesting because uh, we were uh, also had a printing press at the paper. I worked at the St. Albert Gazette, which is a small weekly in one of the suburb communities of Edmonton. Cool. Uh, very great newspaper, by the way. Uh, and weeklies are still uh, relevant <laughs> in contrast wow. to other newspapers. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, we had a printing press and they uh, we were printing the newsletter for something called the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. And so I was reading it and they were advertised for an executive director and I was 20 something at that time and wholly unqualified. But I thought, what the heck, I'll apply. I, I really love wilderness, I like parks. Uh, and so I applied and uh, didn't get the job. Um, but the person they did hire didn't show up. <laughs> really? <laughs> and so they called me and they said, well, we'd like to try you out. And so that's kind of how I got started. I was the wow. first paid staff member of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society in Alberta. Uh, and worked uh, for w various groups since then, the Pemina Institute, which is an energy policy institute here in Canada. Uh, and I've worked for publishers. I was a production manager of a nature publisher in Canada that produced, uh, what city are you guys in? Pasadena, California, just near Los Angeles. Well, we did Birds of LA, and I know we okay. did Birds of San Francisco, and I know we did Birds of Seattle, but I don't know about Pasadena. Yeah. We, we, have, uh, we have parrots that, uh, that that, uh, that are specific to Pasadena. Well, they're not supposed to be specific to Pasadena, but there was a, a fire in a pet shop up in, in, the, in the hills above us in, in this little place called Altadena. And uh, a bunch of parrots got out. They were able to escape and, uh, and they, they were successful. So now we have our Pasadena parrots. We have our very own <laughs> Pasadena parrots yeah. here. Well, that's better so. than house sparrows, which we imported yeah. from uh, Britain. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, so, um, I I was gonna you you listed off the, the Canada background, so we you know to, for our listeners, you know David is our northern neighbor up there in Canada, and so have you been there your whole life, born and raised? Yeah, I'm really stuck where I am. I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, which is the most northerly big city in the Western Hemisphere. I might uh, I'm kind of happy to point out, happy to point out, not happy that I live here like every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit cold, maybe. But uh, yeah. you know, I have five kids and uh, a long oh, history. Wow. I, I'm sitting in a cabin uh, uh, that um, my grandfather built a cabin at a lake before there were even roads to the lake in 1919. And so wow. my roots here are so deep. Uh, I've rebuilt the cabin since then, but I'm still there. I'm still in the same neighborhood. My grandparents had an acreage, uh, which is now inner city, but used to be in the country. <laughs> so, wow. So That's it's expanding, expanding fast up there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, yeah. and you're joined by a, a giraffe. For people who are watching the podcast, he's got a giraffe uh, up there, a portrait of a giraffe behind you, but you, you said it was something else. Well, you know, it's really got nothing to do with this story whatsoever, uh, <laughs> except it's a, a photo I really love. I, I, as a photographer, I was in South Africa about a year and a half ago, and uh, this was from Kruger National Park, I believe. And the photo is not of a giraffe. It's of the bird above the giraffe. And if oh, you actually yeah. were able to zoom in on it, which we can't, uh, in spite of the name Zoom, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the bird is an oxpecker. And an oxpecker is a bird that lives on the backs of water buffalo and uh, rhinos and giraffes. And they, they live on the bugs that really bug the big animals. So they have a very... Uh. Uh, they have a very symbiotic relationship, so they eat all the mites and ticks and, and nasty things that try to live on the backs of big animals. Wow. So big animals are actually searching these guys out. The, well, they don't mind them. them. Ah, yeah. They don't mind them. Symbiotic relationships yeah, totally. in nature. Oh, that's, um, I, I, yeah, I, we don't mind tangents. We embrace them wholeheartedly on this show. So if we, you know, we find ourselves talking about giraffes or birds that are eating mites off giraffes, we, we wholly embrace or it. Or log so, cabins or anything. Or log frankly, cabins you know, and it's, roads it's, yeah. and familial history. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. We, we are here in uh, Los Angeles. Have you actually ever been down to this part of the U.S. before? I have. When I was young, I, I thought I would tour the world, which to me was between here and Tijuana and back. Uh, so I <laughs> yeah. drove down through central U.S. and Utah, all those national parks in Arizona, went over to San Diego, walked into Tijuana, and then drove all the way up the coast in a Honda Civic. And it was in, during the time of the oil crisis in the 1970s. Wow. And uh, Americans were very mad at me because you guys, for whatever reason then, you had a different president then. Um, at the time, uh, during the gas crisis, you guys lined up for gas. But for some crazy reason, they would let the tourists go to the front of the line despite the grumbling. Uh, really? <laughs> and so that's, a, that's an interesting little side story. But here's the best part. I drove to Tijuana and back on $110 worth of gas. Oh my goodness! Wow. Times have changed. That's for sure. Wow. Well, wow. yeah. That's. It's, uh, <laughs> that's I, I wanted to say that now. The new thing will be uh, how, how long can can people get their uh, their battery to last? Like how far how far can you make that battery go? Like, you know, right. What kind of distance? How how many refills do you need to get? Uh, you know, to T one and back. Like do I have to recharge two times, three times? That'd be that'd be a. Uh, it's nice to see the world changing that way, but yeah. that'll be the new the new conversation that people talk about. Well, the cool now. thing is, as you probably know, there's an app for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> there's an app for everything. App for yeah. everything. Yeah. So, uh, how did you get into to green energy futures? What what uh, what what kind of put you in that direction? I spent a number of years as the communications director for the Pemba Institute, which is an institute that works on energy policy in Canada. 
and I worked on climate change, uh, oil sands impacts on the environment, conventional energy impacts on the environment, a little bit on renewable energy, energy efficiency. And, you know, that's like bump and grind hard work. Uh, yeah. You do that as a service to society, but you don't do it yeah. because, you know, you love every minute of it. Uh, you know, those are nasty issues. They're hard issues. And while I was doing that work, I came to this realization about 10 years ago. Uh, I'd be reading the newspaper locally, and I'm sure it wasn't much different from your newspapers. And when they would do stories about solar or geothermal or something like that, you know, it'd be about how flaky it is, how expensive it is, how pointless it is. Uh, and I already knew at that time that, you know, these things had a lot of potential, these alternative yeah. energies, which were so-called at the time. And so I was so appalled by the way they were treated in the media. I thought I had this crazy idea. I sat down and I wrote this little uh, five page vision. If I could do anything in my life right now, what would it be? You know, the kind of thing you do for yeah. therapy. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, reality sinks in. And you realize you can't do it and you go out and get a regular job. Uh, but, in, <laughs> but in this case, I wrote up the vision and my vision was to travel across Canada to find the most inspiring people doing the most inspiring projects. And I mm -hmm. called the area that I would operate in green energy uh, because it was didn't mean anything and it was wide open. It would let me do buildings and transportation and energy itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and lo and behold, you're going to find this funny. I took this vision to a company called Suncor Energy, which is okay. now one of the biggest oil sands and oil companies in Canada. Uh, they actually uh, subsumed Petro Canada. Like it's just a giant company, and yeah. they loved the vision, much to my surprise. Wow. And I spent yeah, that one, is surprising. I spent about one point three or four million dollars of their money and TD Bank's money and uh, Shell Canada's money, traveling the country, uh, telling these stories. And I was so dumb and, and idealistic at the time. I said, you know, there's three rules in this project. One, I will never do stories about you. Two, okay. I will never do stories about conventional energy. And three, I will never do stories about uh, uh, um, carbon capture and storage. Because okay. that'll be adequately covered somewhere else. And it's a morass of politics. I wanted to cover the potential of uh, all these alternative energies to transform the world, which really did seem kind of crazy, almost crazy at the time, and has now oh, turned sure. out to be uh, not so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I yes. love that. I love that because you, you had some hard terms in there for, for doing this, and they agreed. They went with it. It really was a recipe to be unemployed when you think about it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's, but it makes sense, though, because you want... If you're going to do something like that, you want to be able to capture people's imagination. You want to be able to to, to start striking into places where, where others aren't looking and to, to, to see what new and inspiring and exciting things exist. And that doesn't, you know, the stuff you weren't willing to do, that's that's the past. That's the past or that's or that's areas that we maybe, you know, know, know a bit more about or understand a little better. So it's kind of, I like that idea of we're going to go and strike out and, and find the inspiring stories, the unusual stories. We're going to find out how people are being incredibly clever about figuring out this this problem of, of clean energy. Yeah. That's neat. Well, when, when I dug into green energy futures, um, it shows if you go into the, uh, you know, the podcast, which is our way of consuming it. You said it was on the radio up there. 
Yeah, so actually, you know, I, this goes back to the beginning of our story, and I'm sure the beginning of your story. How do you get people to listen to you in the beginning? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's difficult. And uh, right away you learn that all of the podcast software is simply software to host something. It doesn't get you a single listener. <laughs> right, exactly. And so my <laughs> secret weapon, and I had a longtime affiliation with uh, this network. It's called the CKUA Radio Network in Alberta, and it's the, one of the only listeners supported radios in Canada so wow. it's almost all listeners supported listeners donate money that's how it survives uh, and uh, I had a relationship with them before I produced a 300 part series on sustainability uh, prior to that and I nice. went to them and I said I have this new vision of green energy futures and they were a little skeptical but uh, <laughs> they trusted me and so my secret weapon was I would gather video stories for YouTube I would write blogs on my channel and then I would take the same audio from those video interviews and turn them into podcasts for radio, the four minute radio features. So the length of my podcast is four minutes, not because I thought that was good for the internet, it's probably not the best for the internet, uh, but it's perfect for radio and it's exactly what they asked for. So I've been doing that and even though I've got 250 episodes, I've probably done 350 uh, podcasts for uh, CKUA radio. And the great thing about radio is on YouTube, I have to attract you somehow and then get you to watch it. Uh, sure. My blog, I've got to draw you in somehow from Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever and get you to read my blog. On radio, nobody tunes in to listen to me. It's a four minute radio feature. The odds of you tuning in at the right time are zero. Right. Uh, but eventually, every single listener in the radio network, half a million people, hear the podcast. And so that's my way of, of uh, reaching the great unwashed. That, that is very, very cool. I, I'm glad you specified about the length of time of the show, because if you go um, into you know iTunes and you look at the history of the show, you see it started in 2012. Is that correct, or is that just when they started being published? That was on, the pilot. The... No, I started this series in 2012. 2012. So you go back to 2012, and you can see that the first few are, are one minute. Um, long and then it g gets up to four minutes and then the consistency I was scrolling up and I see four minutes literally for since 2013 pretty much and I thought here's our podcast that we you know we target that 30 45 minute window but if you were to scroll very through, rough yeah very rush <laughs> we, we 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 knew when we started this show we were like well we want that that window of time for the internet and for you know we're not on the radio out here we wanted that uh drivable time you know people sitting in their commutes somebody on their way to work we thought about the 30 40 minute window especially in LA would be perfect but we overshoot we undershoot we're all over the map but I but now it makes sense to why you're always four minutes it's for that specific broadcast time so well, is funny, that difficult funny, to to squeeze it in there funny story because uh if it's not four minutes it doesn't run it's pretty much that simple it <laughs> oh, it's that simple yeah right? Uh, right but the one minute story it did start as one minute uh and you know it was funny because it, when i did the stories on sustainability the previous series called the ecofile uh, it was a 20-minute radio show, and it had a news component and a feature component. It was really cool. Uh, but they wanted to get away from that. CKUA is a music network. It's known for ah. music. And, oh, really? Uh, so they don't want you diving out of the music for too long. And so they said, well, just do one minute. So I started doing one minute, uh, and then CKUA hired a new program manager, and he was about to fire me because he said uh, – 
those things just sound like ads. And I said, well, that's because they are. In one minute, all I can do is an ad for a story. And right? You know, if it was up to me, I'd, I'd do it longer. And he said, well, that's a good idea. Why don't you do it four minutes? Well, that's not a lot longer, but it's a lot better. You can tell a pretty yeah. good story in four minutes. Yeah, that is cool. That is cool. So that's how it kind of evolved into being that 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 time frame. But yeah, when when you go through, and I've listened to some of the shows, it is amazing how much you've perfected getting to a topic, getting in and getting out in that in that time frame. So I, th- I thought that was very very cool. Um, what has been along the way some of the standout moments for you? Um, while doing this, like uh, stories that you've covered, places that you saw across your country um, that really have have stuck with you. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's like asking <laughs> who, which is your favorite child. Uh, right. It's probably so hard because like if I go on your YouTube, you, of course, can see the ones that rose to the top. But I was really curious um, as to which ones for you stood out. Um, you know, I really wasn't interested in buildings when I started this. I wasn't interested at all until I discovered that buildings are really big when it comes to climate change emissions and that it's pretty easily solvable. And so I started to, to uh, find stories about people doing unusual things with buildings. And like I could pick a hundred stories here that are my favorites, but sure. um, the idea of making a net zero building, a building that produces all of its own energy on a net annual basis, or a passive house building, these, these ideas all get combined. I got to meet Michael Reynolds. Do you know Michael Reynolds? I don't. So Michael no. Reynolds is a rebel architect from New Mexico, and he started building earthships in, oh, 40 years ago. Earthships are made out of recycled yes. beer cans and tires and you stuff them with dirt and you make a basically a house that's surrounded by the earth on three sides so it's super insulated and it's got kind of a greenhouse on the front and it's totally passive heated using passive heat coming through the greenhouse and uh, it's a terrific idea and it was one of the early passive house designs but totally alternative i mean you can't you couldn't build these in neighborhoods in the city but he became something of a folk hero uh, right. But eventually he lost his architect's license because um, he was building illegal subdivisions out in the desert in Mexico. <laughs> Rebel. <laughs> and, uh, the Green Rebellion uh, lives on. Yeah. But he got his license back because he was such a folk hero. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But the cool thing is the guy that I worked with to start this series, I hired this young guy who was smarter than I am. His name was Duncan Kinney and he's really committed to this stuff. And him and his father decided they were going to build an earthship. And in fact, they built the first uh, Michael Reynolds official earthship here in Alberta uh, that was certified or finished uh, about six years ago or so, five years ago. Uh, And um, Michael Reynolds has a company now and he's still around. He has a company called Earthship Biotecture. And you can hire him and his crew to come up and help you build your Earthship. And so the Kinneys did that. And so I have photos uh, and of Michael Reynolds, who's now, I think he must be in his 70s, uh, laying the, um, the rocks on the, on the en- at the entrance to the Earthship in southern Alberta. Uh, you know, just like that's what he does. You know, like yeah. it was pretty cool meeting him. And uh, I'll never forget his opening um, because I, I asked him kind of a crazy question, uh, you know, did you do this just to spite the man or something like that? I tried to ask him some kind of hippie question in my, at least in my mind. 
And I don't care about the man. <laughs> and it was perfect because he launched into this little tirade off the top. And it was just classic Michael Reynolds. And it was one of my favorite moments for sure. Oh, oh, I love great. it. That's that's yeah. great. And what a great name, Earthship. That right there just sounds cool. It You're does. immediately sucked in when you hear the name Earthship. Well, if you live in an Earthship, yeah. it does. It's yeah. like it's, it makes it makes you cooler immediately. Right? Um, immediately, yeah. I love it. That's I love awesome. it because because I saw some of the popular ones. There was a there was a YouTube that gotten a lot of views about a guy who had that. Um, I think his also may have been called an Earthship. Or um, correct me if I'm wrong. It was that. It's probably your second most popular video. Is that place that was self-sustaining, solar-powered, way up in the in the middle of uh, uh, somewhere in Canada? It's like open, freezing cold, and he's oh, got you okay. know. You're talking yeah. about the same Earthship. So here's a lesson in social media. We did our first story on the Earthship four or five years ago when it was being built, uh, and you know it did okay. It got a, I don't know maybe a couple hundred thousand views or something, and then um, people kept sending the Duncan, my colleague, uh, notes and letters and emails and whatever, and asking him, so how's it doing the Canadian winter? And so I thought, uh, okay, let's do a story. I'll come and stay with you for a couple of days, and we'll do a story about surviving uh, in an Earthship in the cold, desolate Canadian winter. And that's <laughs> we used that as the headline. And uh-huh. uh, you know, I knew that was a good idea. But that video sure. has three times the views of the original video. <laughs> How about that, right? Just, to, just, to, it's all about those keywords that people are going to click on and be like, I've got to know, cold, desolate. How will you survive? Well, I mean, this is why you know this is why why uh, why companies spend so much money on on branding and on messaging and on how you know yeah. on getting surveying the right phrases to see if they can find that secret, right? Because it's it, it is people you know if you get the right words, people just go. Off well, and, go. and I think I've got a lot of American viewers in that one. I, I think the cold, desolate Canadian winter uh, kind of resonates with them for some reason. <laughs> yeah, right, right, for sure. <laughs> well, well, our imagination of of, uh, of pretty much everywhere else is is that it's it's much more difficult than we think it is. Like, like, you know, I, I know that, uh, so I'm Australian. My, my, I don't sound like it, but my family's Australian. But pretty much anyone I tell that I'm Australian, they say, oh, my God, how do you live down there? Everything's trying to kill you. <laughs> right. Well, so that's the American perspective. I mean, when you live there, you're like, well, not really. <laughs> right? yeah. But yeah. if you live up here, you think, well, you have the snakes and the spiders and, and, the, and the crocodiles, and you're just going to die if you live there. Yeah. And I think it, the same kind of thing applies to some degree in Canada. It's like, well, if you go too far north in Canada, you just die, don't you? Just you just freeze to death. Everybody looks like Jack Nicholson <laughs> at the end of The Shining, just yeah. frozen to death. You know, so <laughs> well that that's pretty much sums it up. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. So, I, so you you said you got you got into it originally uh, through through you know forestry because you wanted to be outside, and then green energy sort of you know took over. But where like at this point in your life, what what uh, environmental topics excite you the most? Like what what uh, what about this industry or this this business? I guess excites you the most. It's pretty simple, really. I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a political beast, and I don't mean in a hard, like, party-supporting way. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think about issues and how they affect how society's progressing a lot. Uh, and, you know, in the beginning, when I took the job with the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, I thought wilderness was, and parks were, like, the ultimate thing, you know? Like, yeah. wild ecosystems are where life all came from, and if there's anything that's important on Earth, it's those wild ecosystems of, of which we are products of. Uh, and so, when I, in my youth, that was the big deal. I eventually came to realize that uh, it's energy that makes the world go round. So, just about everything in the geopolitics of the world centers around energy. 
And so yeah. energy in the environment, energy in politics, energy in religion, like just about everything that's contentious uh, or, or positive uh, or negative in the world goes back to energy on some level. And so when I realized that, um, I really, and, and I kind of married my environmental interest by being interested in renewable energy and energy that has low impact, uh, the rest uh, came pretty naturally after that. So I started to really get enamored with it. But I have to say, it's the people that I've met. Uh, you know, I meet people um, that are so inspiring. You know, you could go out and you could start a podcast series about entrepreneurs. And you could interview right. entrepreneurs because they're entrepreneurs and they're driven and they never give up and they fail two or three times and, and eventually they succeed and you have a good story. But yeah. these entrepreneurs that I, I meet are doubly inspiring because they're successful entrepreneurs, but they're mission driven. I would say almost 100% of them. They really yeah. feel good about what they're doing. So one of my early stories was about a, a small startup company from Calgary, Alberta, which is our energy capital. It's our Houston of Canada, uh, is uh, called Greengate Power. And the guy's name was Dan Balaban. And uh, he started building big wind farms when the economics were appalling, <laughs> when the system <laughs> barely accommodated them, sure. uh, when it really didn't sound like a terrific idea. And he left the job as a software developer who built software for the oil industry, which was like a, a, you know, a license to print money at that time. He left that for this, this seemingly hopeless business of renewable energy. Uh, and he started building wind farms. He's very creative. So in the beginning, when the economics of wind uh, weren't as good, and when um, uh, the only way you could make it work was through carbon credits, he actually yeah. sold carbon credits to California uh, for his two first projects. Uh, one was the largest wind project in Canadian history, uh, and the other one was the most northerly wind project uh, in, on the continent. One was 300 megawatts, the other was 150. Those are pretty big wind farms. Uh, but the economics were made to work by, um, by selling the carbon credits to California, which, by the way, is not a great idea politically uh, for you guys or for us. Like, uh, <laughs> we're not getting the benefits if we sell them to California. And California decided that was a really bad idea at some point and won't let, right. them, uh, won't let people buy them from that far away anymore, uh, <laughs> which is probably smart as well. But he got his company off the ground because he was creative, and we had a little—we have a little technical difficulty. It's kind of cutting it in and out on you just a little bit there. But you were in the middle of telling us about the entrepreneurs that work in this space and how inspiring they are, and that's kind of—that was kind of where we were before we lost you. So if you wanted to get back into that, yeah. So a guy I met, uh, you know, left the oil industry. He was selling a software to the oil industry, which was a, an incredibly lucrative business. <laughs> Uh, because yeah. he wanted to do uh, something uh, a little more aligned with his uh, with his view of the world, and so he started a wind company against all odds. And uh, you know, as right. I, I don't know if we still have this, but he sold his credits, carbon credits, for his wind farms to California, and that's the only reason that made his early wind farms economic. Um, but you know, fast forward from there, uh, after building the largest wind farm in Canadian history by being very innovative, very small company, uh, last uh, couple of years ago, um, he, wind in Alberta now is the cheapest form of electricity money can buy. And this has completely changed wow. in 10 years. So we, uh, we can build wind farms and, and uh, enter into long-term contracts for something like three and a half cents a kilowatt hour, uh, which is incredibly cheap. It's like half the price yeah. of gas. Uh, wow. And so now... 
His latest thing is he's building the largest solar project in Canadian history uh, right here in Alberta with no subsidies. Uh, and he's going to sell electricity uh, for a rate that's about the price of wind. So now you can build wow. wind farms and solar because it's the cheapest way to produce electricity. You don't have to do it because it helps climate change or it helps us with all these other environmental problems. Uh, no, you can do it because it's a really smart business decision. It's and the so most cost effective way to go. And yeah. so my point is, uh, as an entrepreneur, he's a very uh, compelling on entrepreneur. You know, like he really, he's not afraid to fail and he goes out and works hard, uh, but he's mission driven as well. And those two things together make a very powerful, uh, very powerful person. And they're very inspiring and they make great stories. So I can't tell you how many times uh, that cycle has been repeated in stories we've done because we found amazing people. Uh, another guy I found in uh, Saskatoon was, his name was Kent Rathwell and he had a birdseed company. And he mm -hmm. got this crazy idea that he wanted to create a carbon-free value chain for his birdseed company. He sells birdseed, you know, when you feed the birds, sunflower seeds. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he wanted to create a carbon-free value chain. And so he started a company to make electric vehicle chargers. And he bought electric vehicles to drive around. Uh, and this was way ahead of the curve because nobody had electric vehicles uh, when right. he started the company. And, you know, in business school, they tell you the first thing you never do is don't try to drive demand with your entrepreneurial idea. You know, <laughs> yeah. Find a demand, you know, like food or something yeah. that yeah. people have to <laughs> need and, and satisfy that demand and get rich. You know, uh, right. no, he didn't do that. He, uh, he had to actually raise the money to do each one of his sales. And he built the, one of the largest networks of vehicle chargers in the world here in Canada. Wow. You can go all the way across the country now uh, and most of them for free. You can charge for free um, wow. just because of that drive. And, and now obviously that stuff's becoming much more important. The business is more important than it used to be. Uh, and you know, I, I just can't tell you how many inspiring stories like that I've come across. That's that's so exciting that that's that that's what you're you're doing that you're finding those stories and finding those people because that's that's what's going to make this work. In the end, what's what's going to get us from from where we are to where we need to be? It's it's, and I'd like to say it's it's it's, it's those of us who who uh, who you know want to help and our, our passion believe and we're part of it. But really, it's it's those it's those people who are able to make it so viable for anyone, like so just easy, sensible, even the better option that will fix the problem. I mean, you like, we, we keep going back to, to, to the electric car, right? To Tesla. I mean, they, they, that's, that works because it's, it's, it's a cool, it's the coolest option. If you want the cool, fast, rad car that, that does the trick, that's what you get. Yeah. And that sort of changes the market. And then from there, once the market changes, it's like, okay, well now, now this isn't so unreasonable. It's not insensible. It's very, it's, it, it, it can be done. And it's neat to see that you're finding these stories, uh, you know, with, with, wind farms and now solar and, and then looking into, you know, that's hilarious. I mean, birdseed into the, the largest, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, electric charging uh, grid and, or their stations in, in, in the, the world, I guess you're saying that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, that's, it's that's, you, it's just cool. It's funny you mentioned Elon Musk because obviously he comes up quite often in the stories I do, especially when I do stories about transportation, but you know, you're right. Like he transformed our thinking about the possibilities. Right, and that's right. really what I'm trying to do with this series. So prior to Elon Musk, 
people's idea of electric vehicles. There was a small company, a guy who owned a small company I ran across in Vancouver, and he started building these mini little electric cars, and this was way before Tesla. And yeah. they were like golf carts. And, yeah. you know, he actually built them for the road. And then the government said, no, they're not capable enough. You can't drive those on the road. And that was kind of people's vision of electric cars. Right, sure. Right. Time. Yeah. You know, glorified yeah. golf carts. And then this guy comes along, builds a sports car that can be literally any gas car on the road. Uh, yeah. and it makes it so sexy. Everybody in the world wants to own one. I personally cursed Elon Musk when he started. I said, what the hell? Like, I'm not going to be able to afford a $150,000 car. Right. Like, exactly. I, I, I'm selfish. I want to drive yeah. one of these. Right. <laughs> But, but you know, it's, you know, but that's that's again, it's it's that's uh, the the passion of uh, of an entrepreneur, right? You start with that to get people to to buy it, and then from that you can fund the cheaper ones and the cheaper ones, and then eventually, it'll, yeah. you know, I don't know the competition if you heard, makes it, uh, uh, but the of, you know, Elon Musk can now take credit for literally transforming the world uh, because as of last year, um, you know, the electric car market until about a year ago consisted of half a dozen models really uh right, of yeah. any consequence it was the teslas occupying like three of the top 10 spots uh and then there was the leaf and and uh what was the other one that you hear a lot about volts and bolts and things like that yeah, yeah. Uh, but late uh, or last year uh the entire car industry has now moved so there's a yeah. there's a couple of stories out there about three hundred billion dollars in investment is now earmarked for electric vehicles. There are right. seven hundred models under development, due out mostly by twenty twenty five. So they're on the fast track. Volkswagen itself is investing along with Audi and Porsche, their allies, ninety one million billion billion dollars wow. in electric yeah. vehicles. Literally their entire car lineup. They're developing three hundred models themselves. Yeah, yeah that cars. changed the conversation right there, Unbelievable. right? And you because know you have to compete. And, yeah. and you know when the big guys start to turn, the big old you know conventional companies, the Detroit companies start to change, you know you're over the hill, right? Because yep. yeah. what, what's Ford doing? Well, you can already buy a Mustang that yep. is almost designed to compete <laughs> yeah. with the Tesla Model S. You, you're going to be able right. to buy a Ford F-150 within, I think, next year. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. We're over the hill. People may not realize this yet, but these things are going to come on fast and hard. Well, and yeah. that's and again, that's how you do it, yeah. right? I mean, you, you you if you make the if you make the best product, then everyone else has to compete with the best product, and you've changed the market. And there it is. That's awesome, you know. And that's and that's that's what's exciting about what you're talking about with uh you know with with wind being so cheap, right? So find I mean, if you're if you are creating energy for the least amount of money, and and it's you know, and you're making it reliably, and you can get plenty of it, well, then people are going to buy it. Yeah, not you know, not because they care about the environment. Although I'd, lo I'd love it if they did, but they'll they'll be glad that they're taking care of the environment too. But that's not why they're buying it. They're right. buying it because it's the most sensible purchase. And in the end, that's that's how this thing's going to get solved. And it's and it's cool to see people doing it. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, you're uh, you astutely alluded to the fact that people. They do make some consumer decisions for the environment, but really it's about four or five percent of the population that is activist enough yeah. to to very specifically make those investments. Most of us just yeah. want just want to save. We're starting we're starting to have tech issues oh, again. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I suppose we should probably try yeah, to wrap it up yeah, while we no, can. Before, huh? we, before we, can, we get stuck again, we can talk to you forever, David. This is yeah. great. Thank you. We really, really loved having you come on the show. I'm hoping we can at least hear you say a, a goodbye before you're you're gone. Are you still there? I am, and I still have the recorder working, so I can still be here. Well, frozen. we got a goodbye laugh that made it through. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you are. There you are. 
I'm here still, and we, uh, my recorder is still great. recording. So, well, we we loved having you come on the show, David. Um, please check out Green Energy Futures. All you got to do is search that name, and you'll pretty much see everything that he's got out there, from the show to the social media to the uh, you know all the uh, podcasts that you can listen to. It's really great stuff. So, um, we 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 appreciate you coming on the show, and we look forward to keeping in touch, David. I hope you got to hear that little sign off from us. Yes, thank you. You know what's what's funny in a, in yeah. a little time. I can see the yellow box yeah. going. There you are. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> we can see the yellow box from Zoom going. The saying that he that he's, he's, he's talking. He's trying, he's trying. Trying to speak. But this the internet. <laughs> internet. <laughs> Somebody yeah. needs to make a wind powered internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. Awesome. Well, should we just call it there? Or <laughs> yeah. Oh oh. All right, bye. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. We'll uh, we'll uh, we'll have to call it. Let's should we do our sign off? Let's do our sign off now. Okay. Yeah. So we have been your beacon of light in a gloomy environment. Um, more than just charismatic megafauna. Uh, featuring parasympathetic nerve activity. Nature is perfect. Look at eggs. Dolphins don't quit. Yes, and. Y'all inclusive. <laughs> we are y'all inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Even when the internet fails. Yes. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us on the BioFriendly Podcast this week. We really appreciate David Dodge, even though we had some tech uh, problems there. But I think he said a lot of really great stuff, even yeah. with, the, with the cutting out. And uh, really happy to have him on the show. So we look forward to keeping in touch with him and maybe having him back. And uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. All right. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bio-friendly podcast, it's the Bio-friendly podcast.